Section 4. Chapter 4, Part 1 of Creative Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Marcetich, Alexandria, Virginia, 2010. Creative Chemistry by Edwin E. Slauson. Chapter 4. Coal Tar Colors. If you put a bit of soft coal into a test tube, or if you have in a test tube, into a clay tobacco pipe, and lute it over with clay, and heat it, you will find a gas coming out of the end of the tube that will burn with a yellow smoky flame. After all the gas comes off, you will find in the bottom of the test tube a chunk of dry, porous coke. These, then, are the two main products of the destructive distillation of coal. But if you are an unusually observant person, that is, if you are a born chemist with an eye to by-products, you will notice along in the middle of the tube, where it is neither too hot nor too cold, some dirty drops of water and some black sticky stuff. If you are just an ordinary person, you won't pay any attention to this, because there is only a little of it, and because what you are after is the coke and gas. You regard the nasty, smelly mess that comes in between as merely a nuisance, because it clogs up and spoils your nice, clean tube. Now, that is the way the gas makers and coke makers, being for the most part ordinary persons and not born chemists, used to regard the water and tar that got into their pipes. They washed it out so as to have the gas clean, and then ran it into the creek. But the neighbors, especially those who fished in the stream below the gas works, made a fuss about spoiling the water, so the gas men gave away the tar to the boys for use in celebrating the 4th of July and election night, or sold it for roofing. But this same tar, which for a hundred years was thrown away, and nearly half of which is thrown away yet in the United States, turns out to be one of the most useful things in the world. It is one of the strategic points in war and commerce. It wounds and heals. It supplies munitions and medicines. It is like the magic purse of Fortunatus, from which anything wished for could be drawn. The chemist puts his hand into the black mass and draws out all the colors of the rainbow. The evil-smelling substance beats the rose in the production of perfume and surpasses the honeycomb in sweetness. Bishop Berkeley, after having proved that all matter was in your mind, wrote a book to prove that wood tar would cure all diseases. Nobody reads it now. The name is enough to frighten them off. Cirrus a chain of philosophical reflections and inquiries concerning the virtues of tar-water. He had a sort of mystical idea that tar contained the quintessence of the forest, the purified spirit of the trees, which could somehow revive the spirit of man. People said he was crazy on the subject, and doubtless he was, but the interesting thing about it is that not even his active and ingenious imagination could begin to suggest all of the strange things that can be got out of tar, whether wood or coal. 
The reason why tar supplies all sorts of useful material is because it is indeed the quintessence of the forest, of the forests of untold millenniums if it is coal tar. If you are acquainted with a village tinker, one of those all-round mechanics who still survive in this age of specialization and can mend anything from a baby carriage to an automobile, you will know that he has on the floor of his back shop a heap of broken machinery from which he can get almost anything he wants, a copper wire, a zinc plate, a brass screw, or a steel rod. Now coal tar is the scrap heap of the vegetable kingdom. It contains a little of almost everything that makes up trees. But you must not imagine that all that comes out of coal tar is contained in it. There are only about a dozen primary products extracted from coal tar, but from these the chemist is able to build up hundreds of thousands of new substances. This is true creative chemistry, for most of these compounds are not to be found in plants and never existed before they were made in the laboratory. It used to be thought that organic compounds, the products of vegetable and animal life, could only be produced by organized beings, that they were created out of inorganic matter by the magic touch of some vital principle. But since the chemist has learned how, he finds it easier to make organic than inorganic substances, and he is confident that he can reproduce any compound that he can analyze. He cannot only imitate the manufacturing processes of the plants and animals, but he can often beat them at their own game. When coal is heated in the open air, it is burned up, and nothing but the ashes is left but heat the coal in an enclosed vessel, say a big fire-clay retort, and it cannot burn up because the oxygen of the air cannot get to it. So it breaks up. All parts of it that can be volatized at a high heat pass off through the outlet pipe and nothing is left in the retort but coke, that is, carbon with the ash it contains. When the escaping vapors reach a cool part of the outlet pipe, the oily and tarry matter condenses out. Then the gas is passed up through a tower down which water spray is falling and thus is washed free from ammonia and everything else that is soluble in water. The process is called destructive distillation. What products come off depends not only upon the composition of the particular variety of coal used, but upon the heat, pressure, and rapidity of distillation. The way you run it depends upon what you are most anxious to have. If you want illuminating gas, you will leave it in the benzene. If you are after the greatest yield of tar products, you impoverish the gas by taking out the benzene and get a blue instead of a bright yellow flame. If all you are after is cheap coke, you do not bother about the by-products, but let them escape and burn as they please. The tourist passing across the coal region at night could see through his car window the flames of hundreds of old-fashioned beehive coke ovens, 
and if he were of economical mind, he might reflect that this display of fireworks was costing the country $75 million a year besides consuming the irreplaceable fuel supply of the future. But since the gas was not needed outside of the cities, and since the coal tar, if it could be sold at all, brought only a cent or two a gallon, how could the coke makers be expected to throw out their old beehive ovens and put in the expensive retorts and towers necessary to the recovery of the by-products? But within the last ten years, the by-product ovens have come into use and now nearly half our coke is made in them. Although the products of destructive distillation vary within wide limits, yet the following table may serve to give an idea of what may be got from a ton of soft coal. One ton of coal may give gas, 12,000 cubic feet, liquor, washings, ammonium sulfate, 7 to 25 pounds, tar, 120 pounds, benzene, 10 to 20 pounds, toluene, 3 pounds, xylene, 1.5 pounds, phenol, 1.5 pound, naphthalene, 3 eighths pound, anthracene, 1 quarter pound, pitch, 80 pounds, coke, 1,200 to 1,500 pounds. When the tar is redistilled, we get, among other things, the ten crudes which are fundamental material for making dyes. Their names are benzene, toluene, xylene, phenol, cresol, naphthalene, anthracene, methylanthracene, phenanthracene, and carbazole. There! I had to introduce you to the whole receiving line, but now that the ceremony is over, we are at liberty to do as we do at a reception. Meet our old friends, get acquainted with one or two more, and turn our backs on the rest. Two of them, I am sure, you've met before. Phenol, which is common carbolic acid, and naphthalene, which we use for mothballs. But notice one thing in passing that not one of them is a dye. They are all colorless liquids or white solids. Also, they have an indescribable odor. All odors that you don't know are indescribable, which gives them and their progeny, even when odorless, the name of aromatic compounds. The most important of the ten, because he is the father of the family, is benzene, otherwise called benzol, but must not be confused with benzine, spelled with an I, which we use to burn and clean our clothes with. Benzine is a kind of gasoline, but benzene, alias benzol, has quite another constitution, although it looks and burns the same. Now, the search for the constitution of benzene is one of the most exciting chapters in chemistry, also one of the most intricate chapters, but, in spite of that, I believe I can make the main point of it clear, even to those who have never studied chemistry, provided they retain their childish liking for puzzles. It is really much like putting together 
the old six-block Chinese puzzle. The chemist can work better if he has a picture of what he is working with. Now his unit is the molecule, which is too small even to analyze with the microscope, no matter how high-powered. So he makes up a sort of diagram of the molecule, and since he knows the number of atoms, and that they are somehow attached to one another, he represents each atom by the first letter of its name, and the points of attachment or bonds by straight lines connecting the atoms of the different elements. Now it is one of the rules of the game that all the bonds must be connected or hooked up with atoms at both ends, that there shall be no free hands reaching out into empty space. Carbon, for instance, has four bonds and hydrogen only one. They unite, therefore, in the proportion of one atom of carbon to four of hydrogen, or CH4, which is methane or marsh gas, and obviously the simplest of the hydrocarbons. But we have more complex hydrocarbons such as C6H14, known as hexane. Now, if you try to draw the diagrams or structural formulas of these two compounds, you will easily get methane and hexane. Each carbon atom, you see, has its four hands outstretched and duly grasped by one-handed hydrogen atoms or by neighboring carbon atoms in the chain. We can have such chains as long as you please, thirty or more in a chain. They are all contained in kerosene and paraffin. So far, the chemist found it easiest to construct diagrams that would satisfy his sense of the fitness of things, but when he found that benzene had the composition C6H6, he was puzzled. If you try to draw the picture of C6H6, you will get something like this. A carbon chain with eight empty bonds, which is an absurdity, because more than half of the carbon hands are waving wildly around, asking to be held by something. Benzene, C6H6, evidently is like hexane, C6H14, in having a chain of six carbon atoms, but it has dropped its H's like an Englishman. Eight of the H's are missing. Now, one of the men who was worried over this benzene puzzle was the German chemist, Kekule. One evening after working over the problem all day, he was sitting by the fire trying to rest, but he could not throw it off his mind. The carbon and the hydrogen atoms danced like imps on the carpet, and as he watched them through his half-closed eyes, he suddenly saw that the chain of six carbon atoms had joined at the ends and formed a ring, while the six hydrogen atoms were holding on to the outside hands in this fashion. Six carbons linked in a circle with hydrogens around double bonds between three of the carbons. Professor Kekule saw at once that the demons of his subconscious self had furnished him with a clue to the labyrinth, and so it proved. We need not suppose that the benzene molecule, if we could see it, would look anything like this diagram of it, 
but the theory works, and that is all the scientist asks of any theory. By its use, thousands of new compounds have been constructed, which have proved of inestimable value to man. The modern chemist is not a discoverer, he is an inventor. He sits down at his desk and draws a cacule ring, or rather hexagon. Then he rubs out an H and hooks a nitro group, NO2, onto the carbon in place of it. Next, he rubs out the O2 of the nitro group and puts in H2. Then he hitches on such other elements or carbon chains and rings as he likes. He works like an architect designing a house and when he gets a picture of the proposed compounds to suit him, he goes into the laboratory to make it. First he takes down the bottle of benzene and boils up some of this with nitric acid and sulfuric acid. This he puts into the nitro group and makes nitrobenzene, C6H5NO2. He treats this with hydrogen, which displaces the oxygen and gives C6H5NH2, or aniline, which is the basis of so many of these compounds that they are all commonly called the aniline dyes. But aniline itself is not a dye. It is a colorless or brownish oil. It is not necessary to follow our chemist any farther now that we have seen how he works, but before we pass on, we will just look at one of his products, not one of the most complicated, but still complicated enough. The name of this is sodium ditolyl disazo beta naphthalamine 6 sulfonic beta naphthalamine 3 6 disulfonate. These chemical names of organic compounds are discouraging to the beginner and amusing to the layman, but that is because neither of them realizes that they are not really words but formulas. They are hyphenated because they come from Germany. The name given above is no more of a mouthful than A square plus 2AB plus B square, or third assistant secretary of war to the President of the United States of America. The trade name of this dye is Brilliant Congo, but while that is handier to say, it does not mean anything. Nobody but an expert in dyes would know what it was, while from the formula name, any chemist familiar with such compounds could draw its picture, tell how it would behave, and what it was made from, or even make it. The old alchemist was a secretive and pretentious person, and used to invent queer names for the purpose of mystifying and awing the ignorant. But the chemist in dropping the Al has dropped the idea of secrecy and his names, though equally appalling to the layman, are designed to reveal and not to conceal. From this brief explanation, the reader who has not studied chemistry will, I think, be able to get some idea of how these very intricate compounds are built up step by step. A completed house is hard to understand, but when we see the mason laying one brick on top of another, it does not seem so difficult, 
although if we tried to do it, we should not find it so easy as we think. Anyhow, let me give you a hint. If you want to make a good impression on a chemist, don't tell him that he seems to you a sort of magician, master of a black art, and all that nonsense. The chemist has been trying for three hundred years to live down the reputation of being inspired of the devil, and it makes him mad to have his past thrown up at him in this fashion. If his tactless admirers would stop saying, It is all a mystery and a miracle to me, and I cannot understand it, and pay attention to what he is telling them, they would understand it, and would find that it is no more of a mystery or a miracle than anything else. You can make an electrician mad in the same way by interrupting his explanation of a dynamo by asking, but you cannot tell me what electricity really is. The electrician does not care a rap what electricity really is if there really is any meaning to that phrase. All he wants to know is what he can do with it. The tar obtained from the gas plant or the coke plant has now to be redistilled, giving off the ten crudes already mentioned and leaving in the still 65% of pitch, which may be used for roofing, paving, and the like. The ten primary products or crudes are then converted into secondary products or intermediates by processes like that for the conversion of benzene into aniline. There are some 300 of these intermediates in use, and from them are built up more than three times as many dyes. The year before the war, the American Custom House listed 5,674 distinct brands of synthetic dyes imported, chiefly from Germany, but some of these were trade names for the same product made by different firms or represented by different degrees of purity or form of preparation. Although the number of possible products is unlimited, and over 5,000 dyes are known, yet only about 900 are in use. We can summarize the situation so. Coal tar goes to 10 crudes, goes to 300 intermediates, goes to 900 dyes, goes to... 5,000 brands, or, to borrow the neat simile used by Dr. Bernard C. Hesse, it is like cloth-making, where ten fibers make 300 yarns, which are woven into 900 patterns. The advantage of the artificial dye-stuffs over those found in nature lies in their variety and adaptability. Practically any desired tint or shade can be made for any particular fabric. If my lady wants a new kind of green for her stockings, or her hair, she can have it. Candies and jellies and drinks can be made more attractive, and therefore more appetizing by varied colors. Easter eggs and Easter bonnets take on new and brighter hues. More and more, the chemist is becoming the architect of his own fortunes, he does not make discoveries by picking up a beaker and pouring into it a little from each bottle on the shelf to see what happens. He generally knows what he is after. 
and he generally gets it, although he is still often baffled and occasionally happens on something quite unexpected and perhaps more valuable than what he was looking for. Columbus was looking for India when he ran into an obstacle that proved to be America. William Henry Perkin was looking for quinine when he blundered into that rich and undiscovered country, the aniline dyes. William Henry was a queer boy. He had rather listened to a chemistry lecture than eat. When he was attending the City of London School at the age of 13, there was an extra course of lectures on chemistry given at the noon recess, so he skipped his lunch to take them in. Hearing that a German chemist named Hoffman had opened a laboratory in the Royal College of London, he headed for that. Hoffman obviously had no fear of forcing the young intellect prematurely. He perhaps had never heard that the tender petals of the adolescent mind must be allowed to open slowly. He admitted young Perkin at the age of fifteen, and started him on research at the end of his second year. An American student nowadays thinks he is lucky if he gets started on his research five years older than Perkin. Now, if Hoffman had studied pedagogical psychology, he would have been informed that nothing chills the ardor of the adolescent mind, like being set at tasks too great for its powers. If he had heard this and believed it, he would not have allowed Perkin to spend two years in fruitless endeavors to isolate phenanthracene from coal tar and to prepare artificial quinine, and in that case Perkin would never have discovered the aniline dyes. But Perkin, so far from being discouraged, set up a private laboratory so he could work overtime. While working here during the Easter vacation of 1856, the date is as well worth remembering as 1066, he was oxidizing some aniline oil when he got what chemists most detest, a black tarry mass, instead of nice clean crystals. When he went to wash this out with alcohol, he was surprised to find that it gave a beautiful purple solution. This was mauve, the first of the aniline dyes. The funny thing about it was that when Perkin tried to repeat the experiment with purer aniline, he could not get his color. It was because he was working with impure colors, with aniline containing a little toluidine, that he discovered mauve. It was, as I said, a lucky accident but it was not accidental that the accident happened to the young fellow who spent his noonings and vacations at the study of chemistry. A man may not find what he is looking for, but he never finds anything unless he is looking for something. Mauve was a product of creative chemistry, for it was a substance that had never existed before. Perkins' next great triumph ten years later, was in rivaling nature in the manufacture of one of her own choice products. This is alizarin, the coloring matter contained in the matter root. It was an ancient and oriental dye stuff known as turkey red, 
or by its Arabic name of Alizari. When matter was introduced into France, it became a profitable crop, and at one time half a million tons a year were raised. A couple of French chemists, Robiquet and Collin, extracted from matter its active principle, alizarin, in 1828, but it was not until 40 years later that it was discovered that alizarin had for its base one of the coal tar products, anthracene. Then came a neck-and-neck -neck race between Perkin and his German rivals to see which could discover a cheap process for making alizarin from anthracene. The German chemist beat him to the patent office by one day. Graby and Lieberman filed their application for a patent on the sulfuric acid process as number 1936 on June 25, 1869. Perkin filed his for the same process as number 1948 on June 26. It had required 20 years to determine the constitution of alizarin, but within six months from its first synthesis, the commercial process was developed, and within a few years the sale of artificial alizarin reached $8 million annually. The matter fields of France were put to other uses, and even the French soldiers became dependent on made-in-Germany dyes for their red trousers. The British soldiers were placed in a similar situation as regards their red coats when, after 1878, the azo-scarlets put the cochineal bug out of business. End of chapter 4, part 1